Namo tatsa bhagavato arahato samma samputasa Namo tatsa bhagavato arahato samma samputasa Namo tatsa bhagavato arahato samma samputasa Good evening to you. My name is Jack Cornfield, and I'd like to welcome you here to Spirit Rock Center. Spirit Rock Center is a Buddhist meditation center and community that's being established by a group of people devoted to the basic practices of compassion and wakefulness taught by the Buddha. And we have two parts to our programs. We're trying to establish a retreat center here for year-round silent intensive meditation practice. And also to develop a second half of programs which are devoted to the realization of the spiritual life in the midst of our everyday activity. So there are programs which include teachings of meditation and the creative arts, or spiritual practice and hospice work, or meditation in relationship to healing, or psychotherapy, meditation and family practice, in order to make a whole of our lives, um, or to find that which is sacred, um, and to bring it alive in Western culture. This evening I'm very, very grateful to introduce to you and to have as a visitor a venerable Sogyal Rinpoche, who's a man that I respect very much and whose teachings I deeply respect. He's one of the leading lamas uh, who is articulate and capable of interpreting the, the wonderful and deep practices of Tibet um, in a language and in a form that makes them uh, realizable by students in the West. He's one of the most, in that sense, one of the most important teachers to come out of Tibet for us as Western students. And as most of you probably know, he has a wonderful new best-selling book, uh, The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, which has been a gift to many, many people who are reading it and work, working with it. So I'm grateful that he is here. Because I myself am just back from traveling to India for a conference with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and a month-long retreat in Yucca Valley, and tonight was the only night when Rinpoche was able to come, but because I've been away as well, um, and it's usually crowded on Monday, but not like this, <laughs> even more, um, what I thought would be good as a way to connect and reconnect myself with friends and students, would be for us to share the evening and to divide it. And so we will each take some of the time to speak and do some meditations. Um, normally we sit in silence for an hour and we won't do that in our usual way. I'll begin with a talk and some guided meditations as a part of it, and then we'll take a break and then give an hour or more for Rinpoche 
to build on that. And in that way also Rinpoche will have a little bit of a sense of the practice that we've been working with here, um, in case he needs it. <laughs> the topic as it was selected, or at least advertised when I looked on the, on the flyer for tonight, was meditation in the nature of mind, um, which is a lot. Um, so let me begin, if I will, on that by saying that Buddhism is not a philosophy or some new set of beliefs that one should undertake and take over one's life and say, now I have a new, new set of understandings and this is how the world is. Rather, the teachings of the Buddha are practical. And the purpose of meditation is to learn the nature of mind for the sake of our own happiness and freedom of heart. As the Buddha said, not merit or good deeds or special states of mind, none of these is the reason for the teaching of the, the Dharma. But the sure heart's release, this and this alone, is the purpose of all the words and actions and teachings of the Buddha, to discover that awakening in our own life, in our own heart. If we don't know the nature of mind and the ways of mind, our life is like a boat without a rudder. And we get pulled here and there by all of the thoughts and images and stories and feelings and unfinished business that arise during the day. The first verse of the Buddhist teachings of the Dhammapada begins, Mind is the forerunner of all things. With our mind we create our world. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you as surely as the cart that follows the wheel of the ox that draws it. Mind is the forerunner of all things. With mind we create our world, speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you as surely as your shadow unshakable. So this is really an invitation in meditation to begin to study our mind, <clears throat> to begin to look and discover what is this mind and what does it mean by a pure mind or an impure mind or what creates suffering for us or what creates happiness. It's crowded and perhaps a bit hot. Hopefully most of the windows are open around the sides and if there aren't, it would be good if you would make sure they are. Let us sit just for five minutes as we begin to explore this question of what is the nature of mind and meditation. In whatever posture you're in, even if you need to stand, then you can do it as standing meditation. And allow your body to sit or stand in a comfortable and relaxed fashion. When you're ready, allow your eyes to close gently, just for this time. And sit or stand quietly, and notice what is present when you just are here, without trying to make or do or change anything.
there you sit for five minutes and just be aware. What did you notice? What happens just sitting still and being attentive to some extent? What did, what did people notice? Anyone? What was there? Mind wanders. Mind wanders. Where did it go? Noise outside, what you did today, it goes to the past, it goes to the future. Anybody else notice that? <laughs> what else, please? Excuse me? Time stops. Mind wanders, time stops. What else did you notice? The heat in the room? Peaked at Rinpoche, and he was sitting there, probably peeking back at you. <laughs> Uh-huh. What else did you notice? I got a great question. Got a great what? Question. Yeah? I think you like here. A great question, uh-huh. Isn't there an So your, your mind came up with questions, that's what it did. Yes. To meditate is a little bit like looking in the mirror. You sit and what you see is a reflection of what is there. There's a story that I like to tell of Mullah Nasruddin, this Sufi kind of fool and wise man who went into the bank one day to cash a check. And they said, could you please identify yourself? So he reached in his pocket and pulled out a mirror and looked at it. And he said, yup, that's me, all right. So you sit, and what you notice is what's there. There's pains in the body. There are the moods that you came in with. They're the thoughts of the past and the present and the future, sad stories and beautiful stories. The mind contains all of this because it contains all possibilities, everything. It's not limited. And the mind has no pride, so it will do anything. You probably noticed that. <laughs> I, had a good, I have a very good friend and colleague with whom I teach, uh, Stanislav Grof, who was for a time the foremost LSD researcher in the world. And when he came to this country from Czechoslovakia, he was working uh, at Johns Hopkins Medical School giving LSD to ca terminal cancer patients and various other people doing research. And at one point he took some LSD himself and just put on his blindfolds and kind of went inside. And as he had his trip happen, his inner experience, he said all of a sudden it dawned on him that he was actually in his laboratory in Czechoslovakia and he could see it. He could see the hospital where he'd worked for 10 years doing research. And that coming for three years to Johns Hopkins and starting another research project and having all these colleagues in America was just a fantasy and a dream in his LSD session in Czechoslovakia. And for a moment he said, I couldn't tell really which place was so, whether I was in Czechoslovakia and was dreaming that I'd gone to America, or America dreaming I was back in Czechoslovakia. So I was in my lab there in Czechoslovakia and I thought maybe I'll change something and see if, if it's really 
there and he said, I went over to, to turn, take a picture off the wall and turn something upside down. He said, and I froze in terror because he said, if I really could do it, it would mean I could go anywhere and I didn't think I wanted that responsibility. <laughs> the mind is playful. Creation is playful. It's a playful event. And the Buddhist text, the Buddhist myth of creation that comes out of the great um, Buddhist text, The Path of Purification, the Visuddhimagga, begins by speaking about world systems that arise out of mind, hundreds of thousands of eons in this Buddhist creation myth. Again and again, worlds appear. And at first, there are beings who are luminous, who live in luminous bodies, godlike beings. And then out of some longing, you know that longing, they get born on earth. And as they come, they eat the soil of the earth, and their luminosity disappears. And so then, when it disappears, the sun arises and the moon arises to give light and separate night from day. And as they eat further, the plants appear. And they eat the plants, and then openings in their body appear. You know those openings, right? And out of that, there are men and women, different kinds of openings. And then, as it says in the Buddhist creation myth, the men and women begin to brood over one another. You probably noticed that as well. <laughs> begin to stake out territory, separate boundaries, make kingdoms, tell stories, become someone. And mind does it all. There's a Hindu song which goes for, sung to children in the womb, let me remember who I am. And then the second verse, which is sung just when the child is born, is, Oh, I have forgotten already. <laughs> now, as we undertake the path of Buddhist meditation, we begin to study the laws of mind and heart and body. We begin to notice the play of the senses of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching. We begin to notice the qualities of mind the moods, what are called the mental factors of love and hate and greed and desire and compassion, which arise with these senses, and of all of the thought stuff of mind. In Buddhism, mind is everything that is non-material, feelings, thoughts, attitudes, intuition, consciousness. What is mind? No matter. What is matter? Never mind. They're divided in some way. So as we begin to study, simply by sitting and starting to meditate, we can also use an amazing fact, which is that the mind, our mind, can be aware of itself. Let's do another little exercise, meditation. This time I would like you to sit for three minutes, and since people said there was wandering mind and thought, probably tens of thousands in this very room in that five minutes. Your exercise this time will not be to feel your breath or body or do whatever mantra or practice you do. Instead, it will be a very simple practice. For three minutes, I would like you to count your thoughts. Some will be visual thoughts. Most will be word thoughts. Sometimes you get the audio and visual portion together on the screen. Some will be about other places. Some will be about what you're doing. Am I doing this right? Oh, there's number three. They're kind of sneaky, or they come up and they whisper soft words, or they even get sneakier. They say, we're not thinking now, are we? And oh, there's one. Seven, I got you. So for three minutes, like a cat at a mouse hole, let your eyes close again, gently, 
and begin simply to notice the thoughts and count them. Don't count the numbers. They're a thought, I know, but that's the cat chasing its tail. So notice what you see what you count. So first of all, numbers. How many thoughts did you notice? Few, huh? 31. 31. Anyone else? 16, 11. See, some people just have shorter thoughts than others. That's what it is. 21, 25, 15. How many of you had primarily visual thoughts without words, picture thoughts? So you're the picture, picture people. How many of you had word thoughts without pictures? How many of you had both together? And then how many had another kind, more kinesthetic, some other sense of thought, right? So you can begin to even distinguish the forms within which thought arises. Here we are, and the mind creates past, creates future, or creates commentary on the present, visual or word thoughts. You're thinking about what will happen or what did happen. And out of it, the whole sense of our world is created. To begin to meditate is to begin to study this creative capacity of mind. Now, just as we can be aware of the contents of mind, the thoughts and images, and the reactions. We love something, we hate it, we want it to go away, we want more of it, the fear that arises. As you did in that three minutes where the mind became aware of the thought mechanism of mind, so too we can become aware of the space of awareness itself. And when we rest in the space of awareness, in this all things arise for themselves.
thoughts think themselves? They did it anyway. You didn't invite them, did you? They just came and thought themselves. The breath breathes itself like a breeze coming in the window. Sounds sound themselves and hear themselves. Feelings feel themselves. And the mind tells its own stories. The thoughts that come, we call them the top ten tunes in Vipassana. They come over and over again, various themes. And I remember sitting around a table with some colleagues and friends, all of whom I noticed at one point had written a book, or two or three, and I was just finishing writing uh, this book, The Experience of Insight, or that Seeking the Heart of Wisdom, rather, with, with Joseph Goldstein. And when I was working writing, I was at this library writing, one day they were outside using one of those um, weed blowers that make so much noise, and I realized I couldn't write. I couldn't write when that was on, and it wasn't just that I was annoyed, which I was, but what it was is that I couldn't hear the words. And I realized very clearly in that moment that I was hearing the words of the book and writing them down. I don't know who was dictating them, that's another question. So I asked these friends around the table, all of whom had written a variety of books, where does your writing come from? And a couple said they hear it from above, there's something that comes down. Two women said they channel it up from the earth, and someone said, no, I sort of hear it all around me. But it was clear that even the books and the things that we create come from that place of mind. We hear it. Mozart wrote it down as fast as he could, but he wasn't making it up. He was hearing it. So when we sit, it becomes possible then to see this creative capacity of mind. All the stories it tells, who I am, who loves me, who betrayed me, what I'm afraid of, what my plans are, what's true and what's not. My teacher Ajahn Chah's instructions were very simple. He said, sit in a peaceful or natural way, allowing the natural mind to rest as it will, and in that space, rest in that space of attention, notice what appears to disturb the mind. Notice the appearances that come and disturb the mind and see their true nature. So meditation really begins to lead us to a different place than wrestling with all the stories and content, which we do. We like ones and don't like ones and fall in love with certain ones and hate others. It leads us to find the place of natural mind, of rest, in which the appearances that normally disturb us arise and pass and we can understand them. Again, close your eyes for a few moments. And this time, let your body be soft and your attention. Let yourself rest in intention. Let yourself rest in the space of mind. And simply listen. Listen with your ears, but listen with your heart and your spirit, inner listening. And notice the waves of thoughts or sensations or sounds, and let them come and go like the waves of the ocean, resting in space, resting in that which contains them all.
I wonder as you rested there, if for certain moments you could notice the waves of thoughts or sounds arising and passing. And if you could also discover those moments where you decided, I'm going to surf, and you got on your board, and you went on the wave, and you decided to fight with it, or get into a dialogue with it, or try and change it, or get lost in it, and then all of a sudden you wake up again and remember, oh, it's just the waves of thought and sound and sensation. I wonder if you noticed whether that spaciousness of mind could hold the problems that may have arisen with compassion. If you feel the pain of thought and fear that comes out of it, a compassion naturally arises. Otherwise, we kind of fight with things. The process of understanding mind requires compassion. It needs it. So we're all in the same human boat. This is from the Zen patriarch, Hui Nung. He said, as far as the Buddha nature is concerned, there is no difference between a sinner and a sage. One enlightened thought and one is a Buddha. One foolish thought and one is again an ordinary person. Maybe you've noticed that in your life. So one day I was teaching loving-kindness meditation to this whole big group and I just had an argument with my wife. And so there I am saying, close your eyes in my sweetest loving-kindness voice. Imagine someone you love a lot and send them kindness. And I'd pause for people to do it. And I think, when I get home, I'm going to tell her <laughs> off, you know. And then I'd say, now think of someone else you love a lot and do that. And then I'd say, and not only that, it's not fair that she... And it just went back and forth and it was amazing. No pride at all. What's required to really understand the mind is an openness of attention and a very deep compassion. Otherwise, you get caught in fighting yourself and fighting others in the inner Yugoslavia. I'm sure you know that, the Balkans inside. I hate this, I want that, I don't like this person. It's not fair, I was betrayed. I should do this, they should do that, and so forth. Now, out of these very brief experiments in looking at the mind, resting, counting thoughts, being aware of the spacious nature that contains the content of mind, we can begin to understand the Buddhist path of practice, which has been described over the millennia in a paradoxical way, because we're paradoxical creatures, as both gradual and sudden. The gradual dimension of practice is a quieting and healing for even though fundamentally our thoughts arise like a mirage, a dream, or empty, they still have power, haven't you noticed? To direct our lives, we follow them, we do things. There was a medical study done in 1989 by a cardiologist at UC Medical Center, Randolph Bird, who studied 500 patients undergoing heart surgery in a double-blind study, and half of those patients were given to prayer groups around the country to pray for their well-being, and the other half were not. No one knew which were who, which were whom. None, none of the doctors or nurses. It was completely secret. And the 250 that got prayed for in the study had fewer infections, fewer need for antibiotics, got out of the hospital five days sooner on the average, and not one needed to go on a respirator, whereas 17 of the others all went on a respirator. And even people who like to debunk these studies couldn't figure out what he'd done wrong. 
in it. So mind and thought have a great power. I mean, that's where San Francisco came from. Somebody thought, let's put a building here and a street there, and pretty soon you've got San Francisco. The gradual path of quieting and healing understands the power of the content of mind. And without practicing stillness and healing, we cannot really find or resume our true nature. We get caught again and again in what's called the body of fear, the powerful thoughts and habits and beliefs we have about ourselves. Someone asked Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, what is it exactly in Buddhism that gets reborn if there's no such thing as a self? And he said, I'm sorry to tell you, it's your bad habits. <laughs> As we sit, maybe your good habits too, we would hope. As we sit and be quiet, we can begin to see that we contain everything, demons and angels and Mother Teresa and Hitler. And it's really humbling to meditate. It makes a kind of compassion. It's necessary because as we sit, the unfinished business of our lives, the deep wounds that ask for forgiveness and compassion, those are the only things that will untangle them. The ways of honoring ourselves and our honoring others through action that's non-harming. These are the gradual practices, touching each creature in us that's in pain with kindness touching each creature we meet with compassion. And gradually, they become calm, they become untangled. Their nature reveals itself. We're asked in this dimension of practice to bear witness to the sorrows of the world, as the Buddha himself did under the Bodhi tree, to see what is true, including the great sorrows of the world, and rest in the heart of a Buddha in ourselves. In this... Insight, understanding, enlightenment is never enough. It's one-sided. My wife is always asking when people talk about different kinds of practice that they've had and experienced, she said, well, what difference has it made in your life? What difference does it make? If it's not translated into the great heart of compassion, then it's one-sided. It doesn't mean much. I like to think that our sitting practice is a practice of learning to die well and to die and be born and to sit in the face of anything, in the face of the great mystery. And in recent weeks, in being with a friend who was dying with AIDS, who'd done a lot of meditation practice, mostly I just went and held his hand and chanted and breathed along with him. And he had a peaceful death, which one doesn't always have. And a peaceful death is a little bit like a falling star. This unbelievable silent thing happens where for a moment they're alive and then a moment later they're not there in that form. And there's no explanation or philosophy or words you can put on that mystery. The Buddha didn't give an answer to that mystery. It's not a purpose to answer it. What the Buddha did was teach us how to rest in our heart in the midst of that mystery to find our true home, our awakened state. Sometimes, even as children, we remember this awakened state. There's a true story told by a doctor about a young boy and a young girl. And it seems the young girl, they were brother and sister, had a rare blood disease and they looked all around for donors to help her or she would die. Finally, it turned out only her six-year-old brother, she was eight, 
Only her brother's blood was the right match that could save her. So the doctor and mother went and spoke with the boy and said, asked him if he would be willing to donate blood to save his sister's life. And the little boy said he had to think about it, which he did for a while. Six-year-olds are pretty thoughtful if you haven't been around them recently. And finally he came back and he said, yes, I'll do it. I will do it. So the doctor decided to bring them both to the clinic so they could see this transfer of blood, and he lay them each down on a, on a bed, and he drew blood from the young boy, and then he took the bottle and he put it into the veins of the little boy's sister. And while he was doing that, the boy called him over and said, Doctor, I have a question for you. Will I start to die right away? because he hadn't understood and he thought when he was being asked if he would give his blood for his sister that that meant that he would give his life for her, which is why he had to think about it for a little bit. <laughs> this is a true story. That is in each of us, not just in those children. We all touch that when we simplify our life, when we learn to hold our own sorrows with compassion, when we open beyond the limited story that we tell ourselves about this life. So the other paradoxical understanding of practice, beside the healing and the calming of the heart, the holding of our life with compassion that allows us to awaken this mind, is sudden illumination. Just as there's a gradual touching of our wounds and sorrows and the world around us, moment by moment, day by day, a letting go, an opening, there is something sudden in any moment, in this moment, discovering that what we sought all along is here. If we pay attention, says Colin Wilson, we experience almost daily flashes of vision, understanding, which makes us aware that there is something totally wrong with our ordinary self-preoccupied assumptions. In the face of it all, this flash is absurdly good news. <laughs> Kabir says, are you looking for me? I am in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. I am the breath inside your own breath. We want freedom. We want freedom of heart and mind. And the Buddha said, luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored or entangled by fears and attachments that visit it. You know, you could notice those as you meditated. The small sense of identity that comes, I better do this and protect myself and get that and become this. What we seek and long for will never be provided by others. And it cannot even come from changing the contents of our mind, from trying to get rid of your bad thoughts and make all good thoughts. You can, you know, you can shape it up a little bit, like you jog your body. You can kind of tune up your mind a little bit. But it's still a mind. It does what minds do. It thinks everything is in there. What we seek and long for is our true home, our true nature. Ajahn Chah, my teacher, called it resting in the natural mind. And I remember asking him at one time about his own practice. How did he prepare himself for meditation? He said, there's nothing special. I keep my mind where it always is. They say, well, so then I said, well, are you enlightened? 
He said, do I know? I'm like a tree full of leaves, blossoms, and fruit. Birds come to eat and to rest. Yet the tree does not know itself. It follows its nature. It is as it is. The deep question in spiritual practice is who are we? Or who were we before we were even born? Who will we be when we face that moment of the falling star at death? And when we practice and listen to the nature of mind, all the contents, and discover that which holds it all, we can discover we are what my teacher called the one who knows. We can rest in that place that knows who we are. A trust in our being in the face of the great sorrows and joys of the world. A kind of fearlessness grows simply from sitting and being, not from making or doing or changing ourselves, but a kindness and ease and an openness that is our true nature. An old woman came to see my teacher who was near death. She was taken there. And she said she didn't have time for a long Dharma talk. Could he make it short? So I better finish myself pretty soon here. He said, listen, woman, there's no one here, just this. No owner, no one to be old, no one to be young, no good or bad, weak or strong, just this, that's all. The various elements of nature playing themselves out. No one born and no one to die. Those who speak of death are speaking the language of ignorant children. In the language of the heart of the Dharma, there is no such thing. When we carry a burden, it's heavy. When there's no one to carry it, there's not a problem in the world. Don't look for good or bad or anything. Put it all down. Don't be anything. In this, you enter the divine, the deathless. There's nothing more to do, just that. Then he sent her home. Only when we try to be somewhere else, to be someone else, to have something else, do we suffer. Otherwise, it's just pleasure and pain, you know, the 10,000 joys and sorrows. They don't stop. That's the stuff of life. Getting enlightened isn't going to make any difference to that at all. That's just the stuff. But only when we try to be somewhere else do we suffer. Because what we long for is who we are. The whole moon and sky are reflected in a drop of dew in the grass. And each time we sit, this paradox arises that we can honor the smallest things, the healing of every cell of our body, the wounds that come and show themselves, to hold every story with compassion, because you can't do a spiritual bypass, an end run around it. It will come get you, I promise. Each of those is like a creature that wants to be held in compassion as much as those who suffer in Africa or Los Angeles or Yugoslavia. Those creatures within us need the same honor and compassion to untie themselves, to know their true nature. They need forgiveness. Each is a knot in consciousness that forgiveness untangles. And when we do that, compassion arises for life in every form. And yet we discover that we can trust. We can rest in that which is sacred and timeless and eternal, 
that which was never born and that which never dies. And so again from Ajahn Shah, one last thing to end. He says, when you can rest in your heart, the original heart or mind, when you can rest in your true nature, in the original heart or mind, you discover that it shines like pure, clear water. This is the Buddha, your own Buddha nature. When we see with the eyes of wisdom, we know that the Buddha is timeless, unborn, unrelated to any body or history or any image. The Buddha is the ground of all being, the realization of the unmoving mind. So the Buddha was not enlightened in India. In fact, he was never enlightened, was never born, he never died. This timeless Buddha is our true home, our abiding place. When we take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma and the Sangha, all things in the world are free for us. They become our teachers, proclaiming the one true nature of life. So close your eyes again, just for a moment. And as you sit, feel the presence of your own precious life. Be aware of all the longings and hopes and fears that come through your mind. And sense, if you can, that deepest longing to return to your own heart, your own true nature, to rest as a Buddha and love yourself and the world completely. May your practice be filled with blessings and may you rest in the great heart of a Buddha.